At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. We've got quite a spread for you on the political breakfast this week. Hi, I'm Dennis O'Hare. I'll be your host, bringing you opinions from the left and the right. The city of Atlanta is still in recovery mode after that cyber attack last week that crippled its computer systems. Georgia lawmakers finally wrapped up the 2018 legislative session. We'll look at what made it and what didn't. And we'll remember former Georgia governor and U.S. Senator Zell Miller, who died last week. So pull up a seat at the table. With me here again, Republican strategist Brian Robinson and Democratic strategist Theron Johnson. Gentlemen, welcome. It's good to be here. Happy Easter. Let's start with something that really made life difficult for a lot of folks in the city of Atlanta and continues to. This is the ransomware attack that the city is still trying to recover from as we speak. Theron, I'll start with you. On the one hand, seems to think it knows who did it, but it won't talk about it. Mayor Bottoms has not said anything about it. And yet an audit apparently found that the city was warned about this possibility a while ago. Well, I think right now the mayor can't come out and really disclose who this person or persons are in this particular matter because what's going on, Dennis, is that it's a negotiation. There has been a ransom um, put on the table. And but so the I, deadline apparently expired, and the mayor won't say whether or not it was paid or will be paid. Well, I think the mayor is going to eventually uh, educate us on that. But the thing I think that is really interesting in this story is that Atlanta and what we're seeing happen in Atlanta is just not an isolated event. To me, this brings for a bigger problem that city governments and county governments uh, and local governments all over the country are going to have to take some preventive and proactive measures to make sure that their technology is secure. One of the things I do want to compliment the mayor on is that if you look at her first press conference the day that it's happened, uh, she came out and she warned a lot of the citizens of Atlanta to make sure that you check your personal statements, check your card activity, because like me and others, I have an automated pay system set up, particularly how I pay my water bill. But I think what she's done going forward, Dennis, is that she has not hidden the severity of this issue. Uh, she has been very communicative as far as saying, hey, this happened, uh, it's severe. But more importantly, I think that what she's doing now, she's going to bring in some outside uh, cyber experts, uh, some outside companies to make sure that they help her through this recovery phase, but also how do you manage and prevent this from happening again? I wish I knew more about cybersecurity. I do know that our nation and municipalities and counties and states are going to have to spend a lot of money in coming years to protect people's personal information. We've had problems with this on the statewide level and on the local level, and it's going to continue to be a problem. This is terrible timing for the Bottoms administration at a time when they're already dealing with an avalanche of negative news stories having to do with things coming out in open records requests. So on the political level, it is not what they want to be dealing with right now when they're already putting out a bunch of brush fires. And perhaps the biggest brush fire long term would be, hey, you guys knew at least that there was the possibility that something like this might happen. 
Theron, how does the mayor and the administration in general address that? Well, I think what she's got to do is she's got to say, listen, um, some of these warnings, some of these incidents happening uh, during my predecessor's time in office. So I think she owns um, to a certain extent what happened today. But I think she's got to stay on message. She's got to continue to do daily briefings. I know that they are internally are meeting every single day and afternoon to try to talk about some of the things uh, that they're preventing. But more importantly, what she did, Dennis, is that she had to protect uh, people's security, particularly information. And so employees, particularly in the HR department, I mean, there was a threat to hold up the ability for the city to pay their workers. And so a lot of folks uh, were very concerned about payroll. So the big thing that she did right away that I thought was very important is that she guaranteed the city employees who may or may not be affected by this ransomware that they were actually going to get paid on time. Now, to your point, she's got to make sure that she takes really an opportunity here. I mean, as Brian just pointed out, this is an issue just, again, bigger than the city of Atlanta. I think Mayor Franklin coined this sort of phrase as being a sewer mayor. I think that Mayor Bottoms can come in and be the cybersecurity mayor and really is showing uh, how Atlanta is dealing with this problem. And I can see places like L.A., Chicago, New York kind of following suit. Are Given we, the fact that the AJC has been going after Steady Hall so vehemently and with these investigative pieces – we cannot rule out the possibility that the AJC is colluding with the Russians. <laughs> you must not have anything uh, pending <laughs> or uh, any sort of uh, soft pitches for uh, your long list of clients coming up because uh, <laughs> that's not going to help you get your stories uh, in the AJC. <laughs> They're colluding um, with, that, with the with Russians. <laughs> no, I think they would love to be seen as nefarious players in this. Theron, are we at a point where Mayor Bottoms, because of the disclosure that the city was warned about this some time ago, where she is going to have to do what Mayor Reed did himself when he came in, which is blame some problems on her predecessor, the very person who helped support her so much during the election? I think she's got to have a very delicate balance in making sure that people understand that these warnings did not happen while she was mayor, but at the same time, she's got to proactively come back with some solutions uh, to this one incident uh, that's gotten the most amount of coverage to put some uh, measures in, in, in going forward. But I think the key thing is here, uh, Dennis, is that she's got to embrace this issue and she's got to realize that it's an amazing opportunity for her to continue to be transparent with the citizens of Atlanta um, and to really come back and communicate and talk about how she's taking a uh, leadership opportunity to really make sure that people's information is protected and that the city can continue to operate. You know, with the, with the procurement scandal that ate up a lot of the last year of Mayor Reed's tenure, with the ongoing stories coming out about how city funds were used inappropriately, with ongoing stories about how the city has stonewalled laws that require transparency and turning over government documents, then this happens. You just build this narrative, and I'm not building a conspiracy theory. I, I've been a bureaucrat and been in these offices myself, and I know that none of us are smart enough to pull off a conspiracy. But you do have this sense that no one was minding the store of good government, that no one was doing the nuts and bolts of government. We know they were taking nice trips and having fancy dinners, but who was making sure the government ran well? And there's just a lot, a lot of things just like trickling one after the other, and it's it's a pretty damning narrative at this juncture. But I think the thing that Mayor Bottoms has got to do, and, and she's doing it, is use these challenges, as Brian just uh, clearly outlined for us, but to say, I, on day one, 
came in and started really fixing them. And so one of the first things that she did, Dennis, is that she came in and admitted that we needed to have a more transparent procurement process, right? So she took that. The second thing that she said when we looked at uh, how there were clearly some delays in open records, she now has instituted an internal policy to train people, to make sure that people are, are adhering to the law, to make sure that we're responding not only to the press, but any organizations that put out open records requests. And I think the third thing that she got to continue to do is that at a time when she hasn't completed her first 100 days yet, I envision a speech at her state of the city saying, hey, guys, hey, citizens of Atlanta, look at what I inherited. Okay, but look at what I have done to try to get into the nuts and bolts, into the basic services of the city of Atlanta. And then at a time, to me, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about as far as, you know, corruption and bribery scandals and uh, clearly people not uh, turning over open records. She can do that in a very delicate way to say this is not going to happen under a bottomless administration. The idea of look what I inherited sounds a lot like what Kasim Reed himself did when he came in following the administration of Mayor Franklin. And on the subject of Mayor Reed, we've alluded to this a little bit. The open records disclosures of expenses that he had to reimburse and expenses that his critics are continuing to question. Theron, does this do any long-term damage to Mayor Reed's future political hopes because he has said, you know, he might have another race or two in him eventually. Well, that's exactly what his spokesperson uh, said. Uh, One of the things that uh, the spokesperson for Mayor Reed said was that he wanted to make sure that if he decided to pursue higher office one day, he wanted to go on the record and showing that he actually repaid upwards to $30,000 in expenses that he thought were not clearly legit city uh, city expenses. But But will that turn out to be enough? I think that it will, because at the end of the day, as this continues, as this audit and uh, and these records are being reviewed, we have to keep in mind, Dennis, that when you're the mayor of Atlanta, just like you're the governor of Georgia, you're the chief executive officer for the entire city. And so you are uh, expected to go out to make sure that you take certain trips, uh, have certain meals, attend certain conferences to make sure that you can bring um, money back to the city. And so you have to build these coalitions of partners across the region. So if you have a mayor of Atlanta that just sits in the city of Atlanta but doesn't go out in places in L.A. and New York and, and at a time where he will be remembered for his commitment to making sure we recruit more startups to the city of Atlanta, I think that the charges uh, will reflect that this was legitimate city business at a time when the mayor was conducting. Now, here's the political optics problem. The political optics problem with this, because I want to preempt what I know Brian is going to say, is that there clearly was a delay. He'll say something anyway. Yeah, there was was clearly a delay uh, in getting the documentation that was requested by these media sources. So I want to, you know, for our listeners to make sure that all of the information that they did request was turned over. And the mayor proactively showed that he had some canceled checks to show that I think that he written a, a large amount of checks uh, to to reimburse the city for some um, questionable expenses. And then the one Including that a, lot of people, a contribution to the Democratic Party. And, and that's the one. Is, it, it was two that was critical. Uh, he made a $2,000 contribution uh, to the Democratic Party of Georgia. And I want to thank the Democratic Party of Georgia for keeping Atlanta a Democratic city because Lord knows what would have happened if Brian's friend, uh, Mary Norwood, would have got in office with some of her Republican conservative principles uh, 
and she wouldn't have been able to handle a lot of stuff that I think Mary Bottoms is handling very well. But in the second, but I bet you would probably follow open records laws, so that would be huge. But the second thing that he did is that there was a lot of question about this uh, sister city trip to Cape Town, uh, where the mayor and you know a few. Um, of his mm-hmm. uh, senior staff, member, staff people huh? went over to basically look at how the city of Atlanta can continue to be a sister city, uh, continue to be a partner uh, in Cape Town. And, and you've so, got to fly first class for that. I mean, you've got to. I mean, there's, just, <laughs> there's just no possible way you could do a sister city in, in coach. So um, I think that this is a story that is kind of sexy right now to a lot of uh, readers and viewers in the city of Atlanta. I think that as the, the information continues to come out, I think it will show that the majority of these expenses that are in question were legitimate city expenses. (laughs) Well, okay, that's fine. They need to come out and explain what they are. One thing that really caught my eye beyond the Democratic Party contribution, which is beyond the pale. I mean, there's no one. I I commend Theron for not even trying to defend that. That should never happen. There was a trip by the mayor's brother to New York City at the same time that Hillary Clinton was announcing her candidacy for president, ran up very big bills. There's no city purpose for that. When you are spending taxpayer dollars, you owe it to them to be able to explain how that money is being spent. And right now, we're not getting legitimate explanations. The idea that months after he left office, the former mayor intended to repay these things uh, regardless of whether the AJC was doing open records request, doesn't really pass the laugh test. This would have happened at that time if he intended to do it. The fact that it's being looked into now, that is clearly why these bills are being repaid after the fact. So it is a really, really bad narrative for him right now. And I want to give some free advice to Mayor Bottoms, and that is, Listen to what Theron said, and you have got to look out for your political future, and you've got to go out and say, this is unacceptable. I'm going to give you explanations of why I was on that trip paid for by the city to Miami back during the re-administration. I'm going to tell you what city purpose was being fulfilled. And as far as the competence of government, how we procure services, how we uh, assess taxes, how we manage the sewer system, how we deal with cybersecurity, I will be the most competent, proactive, capable mayor in the city's history. That is my pledge to you. And she needs to say it firmly. There needs to be a clean break to move her out of this storyline. She does not need to get sucked into the cyclone. It's not her job. She didn't do this stuff. She needs to make a clean break. I know that's tough because you're dealing with people who are friends, people who are with you during hard times. But for her political future... She needs to to take those steps, and Theron's on the right track with it. And all she has to do to pay me back for that advice is to tweet out that she loves political breakfast and particularly my insights. I, th- I think the thing um, that's a good promotion, um, Brian. So thank you. I'll make sure I, I follow suit here in a second. Um, <laughs> but no, I think. Listen, uh, let's kind of crystallize this whole thing here. I truly believe that there's an all-out effort to try to delegitimize and try to make former Mayor Reed unemployable and, quite frankly, unelectable if he decided to run for higher office. But 
the one thing I don't want to let this uh, overshadow is this great job I believe this mayor did in his eight years in service. I mean, at a time as we sit here, he did inherit a different Atlanta than all of us live in today. I think he managed the finances very well. He grew the budget, I mean, upwards to $200 million in surplus. Uh, he did a lot of great things with the governor, the members of Congress, former presidents of the United States of America to really continue this plight towards making Atlanta the international city that we all love. And at a time we were having a robust transit debate uh, in this country, and particularly infrastructure in this country, but more importantly here at home in Georgia around what do we do moving forward around infrastructure and transit. Mayor Reed was a leader uh, very early on and towards the end of his administration and taking some very bold and unpopular steps to make us a more connected city and particularly uh, make her a, a more advanced city when it came to the issue of transit. Pipe the straight car. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, and I, the thing is, the streetcar is a debacle, but the fact is, I even despite all that, despite all of those things that I said, which are all true, I s agree with Theron that, on balance, Kasim did a lot of great things. He is a, a leader with vision. He had energy. He helped promote the city. He was bipartisan. He did things, a lot of things right. And I, and I, I want to make very clear that it's, it is a, a mixed legacy, but he did a lot of great things. And I, and I admire and respect him. We'll get to the state capitol in just a moment, but let's quickly, if we can, jump to the nation's capitol for just a moment. President Trump ousted Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin this week. The response that struck me was from Georgia Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson, who chairs the Veterans Affairs Committee in the Senate. His statement was three sentences long, two sentences of which were praise for what David Shulkin had done to help address the problems in the Veterans Administration. And then talking about the successor nominated by President Trump, Senator Isaacson simply said, I look forward to meeting him and learning more about him. Senator Isaacson is not one to engage in a lot of polemical type language, but that to me seemed to, and I haven't talked to him, so I don't want to speak for him. It just kind of was a sign that Mm, I think he might be exasperated here. Am I on the right track? I think that this falls into a pattern with Senator Isaacson of late. He went out actively opposing the president's move on steel tariffs, and he has said consistently that he did not want to see the secretary of the VA fired. Now, granted, I must say in Trump's defense that this secretary did get involved into a scandal. He took a highly inappropriate trip with his wife to Europe, and they did a lot of sightseeing and vacationing as opposed to doing he official He has come visits. out recently, including on NPR, and saying he never had a chance to tell his side of the story where he said his wife's part of the trip was fully reimbursed. I believe a lot leading up to that showing how much machinations they went into to get her onto that mm -hmm. trip and to present it in a way that wasn't accurate so that the taxpayers could pay for it. So there were some serious issues. So I do think there's some legitimate issues that, that Trump had with him. And, and it kind of falls into line with what we've seen with some of the other cabinet secretaries. You know, where do you draw the line at yeah. Ben Carson's $30,000 dining set on the EPA director's thirty to $40,000 phone booth, mm -hmm. sound-secured room? 
all of them have these weird expenses popping up, and it just and seems there was to, Tom Price, of course, former and congressman course, I was from Georgia. I leave him out because he's you know he's one of our one of our. No, you can't boys. leave him out. No, we're gonna but get him all in there. But he was certainly a scapegoat. I mean, yeah. I feel like Tom Price was was seeing it out unfairly, and I think now it's sort of like coming around to the rest of them. But back to Senator Isaacson for yeah. a moment. So obviously, Isaacson, as the chairman, has put a lot of work into this. Trump is very proud of the VA reforms that were passed in the law last year. Johnny was a major force in that. So we owe it to Johnny Odson to listen to his perspective on this. If he's disappointed, that concerns me because I know that he is the kind of competent visionary leader that we should all trust. Well, you know, at a time when we um, know that Washington is broken, uh, Senator Johnny Isaacson has been the senator that always is willing to get things done, whether it it's it's working across the aisle or even sort of, you know, having conversations that are uncomfortable with some of his people in his own caucus. And I think what's frustrating Senator Isaacson more than anything right now is that he understands that this president is continuously uh, becoming more and more unhinged as days go on, and he is firing people, uh, and people are having to resign because I truly believe that there's just a culture um, that Donald Trump has put in Washington to make these people feel that they're invincible, make these folks feel that they're above the law, and quite frankly, make them feel that it's okay for them to misuse and misspend federal tax dollars that belong to the American people. And so at a time we just spent a lot of time talking about local officials, I think, you know, we've got to really highlight what's going on in Washington because this is a pattern. This is a trend. I mean, we now have seen almost 20 people leave this Trump administration at a time where it's all centered around them misusing tax dollars. I mean, and to some of the uh, accusations that are being made are fraudulent. I mean, that may actually have criminal implications to them. And so I think we're looking at Senator Isaacson, which is a senator who, quite frankly, has made a name for himself in Washington, has been a very sensible, been a very uh, approachable Republican that is not willing to have tough conversations with his caucus, but at the same time is willing to work with Democrats and to go and, and really take away a guy who he has worked with in the secretary of the VA. I mean, that was, I think, gut-wrenching to Senator Isaacson. Senator Isaacson has made a career of making sure that our veterans, the men and women who serve our country dearly, and for them to come back home to make sure that they're treated fairly, to then go and disrupt that um, with firing this guy. At a time where some of these things that we're finding out, it definitely, he should have been fired. Um, but I think the senator is getting very frustrated. I think the senator is like most senators in Washington right now that don't feel like uh, Washington is working for the American people. Brian, real quickly, if Senator Isaacson is as frustrated as perhaps Theron, and I think he might be, is it time for him to say so? I think he's saying it the way Johnny Isaacson says it. This is what he does. He's not overly confrontational. The less he says, the more frustrated he is. He's not someone who shoots off a lot of fireworks. He's someone who moves methodically and thoughtfully, but clearly lays down where he is. If you listen to him, you don't have to read through the lines too much to see where he stands. And as far as Washington working for the American people, I think it's working for the American people just great, at least through Monday uh, until my daughter is done at the White House egg roll. And you're listening to The Political Breakfast with Theron Johnson and Brian Robinson. I'm Dennis O'Hare, and we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We're back with Political Breakfast. Theron Johnson, Democratic strategist, and Brian Robinson, Republican strategist, are with us again. We talked a moment ago about Senator Johnny Isaacson. Let's talk about the man who defeated him when he ran for governor, Zell Miller, who passed away just a few days ago and whose legacy, everybody talks about hope. But as we look at other parts of the Georgia we see today, Give me one, each of you, one thing besides hope that maybe you think you'll be remembered for. Well, I'll give you two things. I think Governor Miller uh, was, I think, the longest serving lieutenant governor in our state's history. He and was, 16 um, years. And he also uh, defeated Johnny Isaacson in 1990. And But um, the two things that I remember Governor Miller for is in 1992 when we had a Democratic president and Bill Clinton Bill Clinton made it his um, top priority to issue in welfare reform. And so Governor Miller uh, appointed then former state representative Michael Thurman to come and run the state defects department and to lead Georgia through welfare reform. The second thing that Governor Miller did that I think that a lot of folks are not focusing on is that he appointed the first African-American woman uh, to the Georgia uh, Supreme Court. And then Leah Sears Collins, now Leah Ward Sears. Exactly. And so um, that was two things that he did that I think was sort of the forward thinking uh, lieutenant governor and then Governor uh, Miller uh, that we all loved. But I think I would not be a true Democrat. And if I didn't say that, I think that uh, Governor uh, Miller and then U.S. Senator Miller uh, sort of veered a little to the right. Uh, He got very discouraged with my party uh, and really Kind, quite frankly, spoke at the Republican convention uh, and uh, was a person who was much more conservative uh, at a time uh, where Democrats was, you know, was in, in power. And so I think uh, that would be the one thing that he did to disappoint a lot of Democrats. But overall, great man, great Georgian, great leader, and he would be deeply missed. And Brian, he even appointed Johnny Isaacson to run the state school board at one point. Yeah, that's right. He was somebody who was able to fight fiercely, and everyone says that he fought fiercely. There but are a few reporters on. who remember that. Right. Yes. <laughs> but then he moved on. And I, a lot of the remembrances that I've seen written by members of the media and by people in the political class have been about that, how you know, he'll dog cuss you and then he's your buddy again. And I think that's a model we all have to follow. Uh, there are people in politics that I have to fight, and then I have to go see them at cocktail parties or at dinners, and that's just part of it, and he was able to do it masterfully. Here's what I thank him for. The fact is he was the first governor to actively seek and make a conscientious effort to change our old state flag, which had the Confederate battle flag emblem inside of it. Now, he lost that that effort and almost lost re-election almost, yes, because of it, going. even yeah. though he had delivered this magnificent Hope Scholarship and Pre-K program that benefited so many so many Georgians, including my own. I'm not going to pretend that I'm some hard scrabble background. I had two parents who both had jobs and were college-educated professionals, but we weren't rich. I had two younger brothers, and 
the fact that I was able and my brothers were able to achieve their childhood dreams and go to the University of Georgia and do it at a, in a way that did not hurt my parents' ability to retire at a decent age. And I didn't have to accumulate any debt. In fact, I finished college in the black despite uh, the, the high cost, because largely because of Zell Miller. I mean, what a huge legacy for the state, but but also just in my life, you know, and I'm sure that my story is told a million times over. And the other thing is he is the only politician who has spoken as the keynote address for both the Democratic and Republican parties at their conventions. A remarkable feat. And by the way, he's also 2-0 in keynote addresses. Both times he endorsed, that person went on to become president of the United States. Let's take a look at what happened under the Gold Dome during those tributes for Governor Miller. The legislature adjourned. Theron, the biggest, perhaps most far-reaching thing they passed was this regional transit system for Atlanta. Now, there are a lot of details to be worked out. There's still a question of how much Cobb County will get involved, but this is an historic first. We had uh, the leadership of Governor Deal, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle, uh, and and Speaker um, David Ralston, who really set the tone for the legislative session that we just uh, completed. To have Republican leaders such as themselves come out and say, we're not only going to do something about transit in a symbolic way, we're going to find funding for it. And so I want to go on the record for commending Governor Deal for finding the money to really make sure that the state is stepping up to fully fund transit. But then we had two people, uh, Chairman State Senator Brandon Beach and Chairman State Representative Kevin Tanner. Uh, both Republicans. Both Republicans uh, go and f- seek out bipartisan support and really had an inclusionary strategy um, to really allow local governments to really have input into this legislation. So you look at a time where Gwinnett County was front and center. Now Cobb is going to be involved, DeKalb and Fulton and Clayton, City of Atlanta. I mean, this was really remarkable. And so uh, I want to give a big shout out to them, but also the, 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 the bipartisan conference committee people who really got in there, worked out some details, uh, made the language uh, acceptable for both chambers, and we passed this. So now, what do we do as Georgians? Now it becomes a will uh, issue, which means that how uh, far are we willing to go? How far are we willing to expand? Voters there are, are a lot have... of decisions at the local level that voters have to have the final say on. Absolutely. So we, we know that uh, the chairwoman from Gwinnett County uh, has made it very... Uh, now Charlotte Nash. Charlotte Nash has made it very... Uh, vocal that she wants this on the ballot this November 2018. We know Gwinnett County is going to be front and center in the upcoming congressional race. Um, and so will the voters vote for that? And then at a time where uh, we know that infrastructure is important in places like the Cab and Atlanta uh, and Fulton. And so I want to commend the efforts of the legislature, but now it's going to be left up to the local governments to really get these issues passed and to really figure out how to operate in this new governance uh, structure. I have a chance the day after the session, within 12 hours of the gavel coming down to talk with Brandon Beach, who was carrying this in the Senate. And he was just bubbling with excitement despite not getting much sleep the night before. And he texted me over these these numbers that he was proud of. 1.9 million people total in Gwinnett, South Cobb, North and South Fulton will now have the ability to cross jurisdictional lines without going into some other Transit, transit carrier. Yeah, yeah. like, I like mean, Cobb it, Community Transit, for instance. Exactly. It's all going to be seamless now. And there's going to be additional revenues to pay for this. $150 million more from Gwinnett, $85 million from Cobb, $30 million from North and South Fulton. 
So when you add to that, that's $265 million plus another $100 million that the governor has made available, and you're going to see something that's really revolutionary, something that's going to be historic for this region. This was by far one of the most successful productive sessions in Georgia's legislative history. And the transit bill is just one example. And we're doing The other it. was the uh, funding for K through 12. We have deal we, the Republicans, I mean, just completely kneecapped the Democrats messaging for the rest of the year. I mean, uh, because they're not going to be able to hit us because this is what this has been their issue forever. And I want to say Jason Carter, who Nathan Deal mm-hmm. beat in 2014, sent out a congressional Congratulatory tweet. Yes, he did. And I and I wrote him back and I was like, this is so great. I love your bipartisanship. I wish that partisanship didn't mean that you couldn't say nice things about each other. He didn't respond. So I guess he just like well, really took also, a dump uh, on me. Chief of staff for Governor Deal, Chris Riley sent out He a responded nice tweet. to Chris. Yeah, he yeah. responded. So it just shows Not you, me, man, though. even though you got appointed to the... <laughs> Are you hurt? Yeah, yeah you I am hurt. hurt. Even though when you got I appointed... I reach out and get slapped. <laughs> yeah, but Brian, you know, you, you, you beat the guy up for a whole uh, campaign. I mean, that was his... Uh, core issue. He was begging the governor um, and asking him to fully fund K through 12 education here. But I think that in, even at a time when you have got this big appointment to the Georgia World Congress Senate Authority, that the fact that a former state senator and a former gubernatorial candidate did not respond to your tweet, I hope you don't let it get you too down on on, on this Easter weekend. I think you just need to call out Jason Carter there and tell him he just needs to respond to my tweet and say, thank you, Brian, you're a great American. That's all that I'm asking for. I'll, I'll work on here. it. Yeah, and, and so we, we and we did this all while cutting taxes for the first time since the 1930s when we implemented the 6% income tax rate in Georgia. So we had remarkable things. I was in the Senate chamber on Sunny Die when the governor came in to make his final address to the General Assembly. Yeah, it's as a governor. tradition. He goes to the House, he goes to the Senate, and he tells them what a great job they did. He'd done it eight years in a row, and he did it for the final time on Sunny Die. And he said to close, I know you guys are now leaving to go campaign, but. If you can't win running on what we accomplished this session, you probably don't deserve to be here. I thought that was very apropos because it was wildly successful. And then you might know that after the uh, gavel came down, the speaker and lieutenant governor issued a joint release praising each other and talking about the spirit of cooperation and teamwork. I mean, just absolutely remarkable, almost unheard of. And the speaker came over to the Senate to talk about Casey Cagle being his friend and and partner and, and how the, the chambers are getting along better because of that partnership. So you saw a lot of kumbaya coming together, and oftentimes on Sunny Die, you just see guns drawn. So this mm-hmm. was huge. But there's a Republican primary coming up and a Democratic primary coming up. We'll see how long kumbaya lasts. Meanwhile... Let's quickly run through a couple of bills that did not make it. And Theron, I'll start with you. The bill that would protect agencies that do adoptions, which want to not deal with gay and lesbian couples because of their religious beliefs, that bill did not make it. That was a victory for, I guess, what you might call the business wing of the legislature that doesn't want anything to as they view it, potentially disrupt the Amazon bid. Well, it was also a win for the children um, who are in these uh, centers and uh, and that are waiting to actually be adopted so they can go to a loving home. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately the Georgia legislative uh, process played itself out because this particular measure was stripped away from the bill uh, and they wanted to make sure that they had a robust debate about it. But I think that at a time um, where we can just leave off Amazon and all this stuff, to me in 2018, Dennis, if we have same-sex couples, if we have people who 
truly are intending to make sure that at a time where our adoption system had not been reformed in over 30 years, to make sure that these young people have a opportunity to be adopted and to be in a loving home, I don't think it should matter the sexuality or uh, of these particular people who have the intent to make sure that these folks uh, have a loving home. And so I think this would have been a backwards step in our state to disc- to allow agencies to discriminate. And then the, the argument that I hear a lot is that when these agencies won't come here or some of these agencies that are here, they may leave. Well, here's what I would tell those agencies who are thinking about leaving. And here's what I would tell those agencies uh, who won't come here, that I truly believe that if it's your intent and, and your core issues is to make sure that these young people who, for whatever reason, are in these adoption centers or in these adoption um, programs, and you want to basically prevent them from going to a loving home where people are going to take care of them, to give them a, a, a house and, and, a, and a good environment for them to grow. Um, and I, I would tell you that your services are not wanted in Georgia. But I truly believe this is something that doesn't get a lot of um, publicity, but I think that this would have been a backward steps for our legislature. And, Brian, another bill that did not make it is the Hidden Predator Act. Yeah. This is one that would extend the time that child sex abuse victims have to file lawsuits against the people they say abused them failed by one vote yeah i think that they need to approach this very very cautiously and carefully here's the problem with this legislation politically is if you have something on the bill on the floor of either chamber and it ostensibly is to take a hard line on child predators who can be against it right i mean politically you, you can't be cast as a defender or protector of people who prey on children. I'm glad that that's the atmosphere. But the reality is, if written too broadly, and I fear this may have been written too broadly, you were going to allow open season on institutions that are doing good work and have done good work for generations because of the past actions of people who may be long since dead and hurting children and professionals today who are doing good things and who who did not commit these crimes. And I don't know what the answer is because Lord knows those adults today who are abused as children, they deserve justice. I I get that, and and my heart bleeds for those people. I wish that there was some way that we could help mend them, that we could help them get justice without hurting organizations that are doing good, charitable work in our communities. That was the argument from the Catholic Archdiocese and from the Boy Scouts. And we know, at least going back some decades in Atlanta, that the Archdiocese, under previous archbishops, had a problem with moving priests around from place to place. There's no doubt there was a lot of bad things that went down, a lot of inexcusable, horrendous decisions made by people in important Uh, positions through the years. And the Catholic Church has had a lot to apologize for because they've done some terrible, terrible misrule when it comes to some of these these children and the priests that were preying on them. And and I don't know what the answer is. I really, I don't know, but I am still leery of what I see as open season for trial lawyers. On a much lighter note, and this is how we'll end it, for both of you who are on your cell phones constantly, whether you're behind the wheel or not, The distracted driving bill passed. Governor Deal says he's going to sign it. This says if you're behind the wheel of a car, you can't be holding your cell phone or other electronic device 
Theron, I'll start with you. Is your life going to change because of this? It is. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I have personally uh, committed to is making sure that I understand that that text, that phone call, or maybe even that response to that email can wait. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've got to uh, adhere to this new law because it's all about saving lives. Uh, I would tell you there have been many times where I will look over into another car and I literally will see someone texting all the time. Uh, and, and, and driving. All the time. And, and I think the thing also that's really going to be interesting is that a lot of uh, our Uber and Lyft drivers mm -hmm. uh, who rely on their phones to direct them uh, how to get us to and from mm -hmm. our destinations. It's going to be really interesting. I still believe, though, Dennis, it's really going to be interesting to see how law enforcement uh, will right. actually uh, be able to enforce this law. It because, won't be easy. Because, you know, the old trick, and I want to go on the record and say I've never done this, but, you know, <laughs> if I were to hypothetically get pulled over by a cop who says, oh, you were texting and driving and I saw your phone in your hand, there's a lot of excuses that one person can come up with. And, and, and so now with this new law, if, if someone is just holding their phone, if they're moving it to the passenger side seat or if they were uh, taking it off a, a particular advice that was holding, I mean, it's really going to be interesting to, to see how law enforcement can enforce this law and then how much um, room will people uh, have when they go and show up to a municipal court to try to push back and protest this violation. You're seeing the new drunk driving. I think it's actually probably mm -hmm. more dangerous than drunk driving. Cause yeah, and I remember... Going in my years at the Capitol, years when this kind of legislation was proposed and it never made it out of committee. I think people had to see what a public health hazard this is. And now we know. And like I said, I think that this is more dangerous than people who are under the influence of alcohol or other drugs because often those people are trying to be super focused even though their brains aren't aren't operating at maximum capacity. And when Mine hardly ever does. <laughs> but when you're, when you're texting... A lot can happen in a split second when you're going 60, 70 miles an hour. A so lot. will this change your life? I hope so. You know, I'm not rich like Darren, who's probably got this really fancy Bluetooth system where he can do all his business over the Bluetooth and voice commands. You know, I drive a 2008 Honda Corp because I'm a man of the people. And so I'm at a disadvantage that I don't have all of this fancy technology that Theron has. But I am committed to doing better because... I acknowledge that I am a sinner, and um, so I can't cast stones. But I, when I'm walking on sidewalks, which is because, you know, as you can see from my girth, is, is all too rare, I am at stoplights, and at every stoplight, you see people on their phones. And it's not like sometimes. It's 100% of the time there is mm -hmm. somebody on their phone. And it's very concerning, particularly I, now that I have an 18-month-old daughter who's out there on the roads with uh, in the stroller, it, it really scares the daylights out of me. And I will say I have never texted behind the wheel, but talking on the cell phone behind sure. the wheel, I am a repeat offender. And Georgia is joining other states. I'm in New Hampshire quite a bit because I have family there. And whenever I go up there, my sister gets on the phone with me and says, put the phone down. <laughs> and so I promise I will. <laughs> and that's it for this week's Political Breakfast. I'm Dennis O'Hare. Once again, we've been joined by Democratic strategist Theron Johnson and Republican strategist Brian Robinson. Thank you both for stopping by. Stay safe out there. Thank you so much, Dennis. I hope that you and Theron and our producer Sam have great Easter weekend for your families. Same to you. And our thanks to producer Sam Whitehead. Now, if you like this podcast, subscribe, and you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to rate us. That's a great way to make sure other people can find us. 
Well, we'll be back in your feed soon with more nourishing political conversation. We'll look for you then. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.